Donaldson a couple of feet in the grave already. To Seager, the pick, the throw, Paxton has done it! It's a no-hitter! The left-hander from Laddish, British Columbia, has just no-hit the Blue Jays on his native soil! Mariners history made back in May of 2018 by the big maple James Paxton, who eventually was traded to the Yankees. But guess what? Via free agency, James is back with the Mariners. Just one of the topics on this week's show. We'll also catch up with veteran sports columnist Larry Stone of the Seattle Times. He's going to talk about a piece he uh, recently wrote about the history of some great Seattle athletes leaving the city during their prime. Might Russell Wilson fall into that category? Talk about a couple of uh, NFL free agents or actually a couple of NFL players who may be on the move. Would they be good fits for the Seahawks? And Gonzaga fans, uh, stick around. We're going to talk with the former Zags great Matt Santangelo about this unbeaten team and also Hoop Fest. Uh, Matt runs that show, and obviously due to COVID, they have uh, had a number of issues. So thanks for joining us. Remember, subscribe to the podcast on all the major platforms. Share it with all your friends. Please tell them to do the same. That's how we get the good word out. The other way we get the good word out is, of course, the other amigos of this three amigo get together. Guys with multiple jobs, but thankfully just one personality. You don't want it the other way around. You don't want just one job and multiple personalities. <laughs> You want multiple jobs, one personality. Michael Bumpus, former Seahawk man of all things, uh, Seahawks media in Seattle. Bill Kruger, former Mariners pitcher, Mariners uh, analyst on Root Sports Northwest. Fellas, how are we doing? The, the snow melting quickly, so we, we, we're we making progress. Yes, we are. It's going away. I got about 10 inches down here in Monroe, and uh, my kids used every bit of it in our front backyard on the hills everywhere. Did you get, did you get a snowman made? We didn't. They didn't want to make us no man. They just wanted to, to sled. That's what they wanted to do. <laughs> I like that. Into the action. Nothing wrong with that. Bill, uh, how much How much of the white stuff came your way? No, I, I think you and I are about the same boat, maybe four to six. Yeah. I'm going to wildly guess. We got a little bit more snow yesterday when everybody else was done. So uh, stranger things. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a, it's a major catastrophe. It's a major news item here. And, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in the Midwest, so it's a little bit of a kind of a non-event for me. I mean, I, I, I heard still, you, I heard you tell, off. yeah, I was going to say, I My heard you life. tell a story the other day, two days off due to snow and you grew up in in the Chicago Correct. area, Correct. but it's we flat a, there, a, Bill. Bill, it's flat there. We got hills. Yeah, here. but there, there's a mindset there. Come on, let's go. <laughs> 39 right, let's, inches in 48 hours, one day. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, all right. Let, let's speaking of mindsets, <laughs> let's talk about, let, listen to this smooth transition. Let's talk about all the right. mindset bill of the Mariners to go out and reacquire James Paxton, the big maple left-handed power pitcher, one year deal, eight and a half million dollars, tons of talent with James. We know that, but of course, a long history of injury uh, issues left flexor strain last season, back surgery last February. What do you make of the move? I think it's it's Yahtzee for the Mariners, double Yahtzee. I mean, this thing just dropped in their lap. I mean, eight million bucks for John James Paxton. Are you kidding me? I don't think they were even shopping for him. I think they were happy with the young guys they have. And this thing just kept, you know, it was like, you know, uh, you keep watching the market, watch the market, watch the market. And eventually you just go, wow, one year, eight million, maybe we're in. And I think James... 
was highly motivated to come back to Seattle because it's a comfortable place for him. He's from Vancouver. I'm not sure where his wife was from, but I think they live here. He's had success here. I think he's a low-key guy. He got a real good taste of New York, and I don't think he wants any part of that, you know, unless, of course, someone was willing to give him multi-years. And I don't think multi-years were out there for James. The market got flooded, and uh, he, like some, Jake Odorizzi is another one, kind of got left on the sideline. Uh, of course, he was injured part of the year last year, and he has a history of injury, but this guy is a top-shelf elite left-handed pitcher. So the Mariners get him for a song, really. He's worth at least twice that in multi-years. So I don't know what it means for the future. Um, I think James has a place where he can get comfortable and, and, and knows his setting, good park to pitch in, a staff that's used to working with him with his physical ailments. He's just a happy guy, I think, and, you know, reclimate your career and maybe hit the market again the following year. The Mariners will be in a point of leverage because, you know, Trader, Trader Jerry, he's going to be looking at uh, – Come come uh, come the end of July, he's going to be thinking about what he can get for James Pax. And if he pitches like uh, we would suspect, he will. So Mariner fans excited. Yes. Got a top of the rotation pitcher. Uh, I don't think it's the, the uh, you know, this isn't if you haven't heard, we're not ready to compete yet. Or so just kind of keep that in mind. So this is this may force them to compete. Who knows? Because he is a, a quite a gem to pick up. Well, I agree, Michael. I mean, this to me is such a, a no-lose proposition for the Mariners. Bill touched on the one scenario. If James has a really good first half, you know, teams are going to be knocking on their door to pick up pitching for a stretch run. And what really, you know, look, what this guy did in New York in 2019, I think you have to take note of. I mean, he goes, you know, you, you can pitch in Seattle and be successful and no one can hear about you yeah. if you're not named Felix Hernandez. He was 15 and six with the Yankees in 2019. And I think that says a lot about James Paxton. I think what it says is if he can only stay healthy and that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. The thing about this guy staying healthy, you mentioned all the stuff he's been through. He had back surgery last year um, during last season. He was only tossing his fastball around 92 he averaged around 95 his career. He's back up to 94, so you can see that he's getting healthy. And just a, to me, like you said, Bill, a steal for these Mariners. You get them for a year. And now if I'm Paxton, too, this allows me to add value to myself again. Okay, let me – yes, let I'll take the one-year deal. It's guaranteed money. We all know how baseball works. And now I, I get a chance to reintroduce myself kind of to um, the majors and see what else is out there. And now you put him around these young guys, too. Now, left-hander, you love him, but you also need someone to kind of – bring these these young guys along he's been to the postseason he knows what winning baseball looks like it's a win for both sides in my opinion yeah the, the, it, it's interesting um and, and maybe he gets back into uh people that have seen him throw well i mean it looked to me like there was a lot of like i, I didn't I, I as i watched him pitch i just felt like he was he was not the same guy his arm got a little flatter angle to it he started throwing lots of sliders i'd like to see him get that arm angle up a little bit and get back to throwing that curveball because when he was fastball curveball, he was he was at his best. So uh, that's another uh, item to check on. Um, but I think he's low key. He doesn't. I don't think he he got. You know, you, you you're going good in New York. It's all good. But as soon as you stub your toe, man, it's every day in the papers. Every day, it's it's, it's just relentless, right? And I don't think that's uh, to his liking. Surprised it wasn't Toronto. Aren't you a little surprised? Bring a Canadian back to a team that needs pitching. 
I mean, left-handed pitcher, add to their team, try to win. I, I, I'm, I'm a little lost on that one. I don't really understand baseball a lot of ways sometimes when you know you can add a player and you're right there and you need pitching, but you don't add it and he's Canadian. I mean, even if he didn't pitch great there, don't you draw with him? You know, the, the only thing I can think of is maybe you, was what you were just touching on is, are they going to play games in, in Canada due to COVID? True. You know, are they going to be in Buffalo? Um, where, where will Dunedin. they be? Yeah. And the fact that home, he's actually closer to his home in Seattle than he is to True. his uh, home if he's pitching in Toronto. Here's the other thing, though, in terms of this one-year deal, let, let's go with this scenario, Michael, that if he has an outstanding year, you know, 2022 is supposed to be, supposed to be when the Mariners actually start talking seriously about contending. So if James can prove health over a full season, and if James sees the potential and sees a Mariners club that actually can compete for at least a postseason spot, maybe he's inclined to stay and not head back out. So it's a, it's really, I think, and James is auditioning for the Mariners and the Mariners are kind of auditioning for James. Yeah. That, that had to be talked about when they sit at the table, right? Like, look, these are our expectations for 2021. We're really, really looking at 2022. Here's the young talent around. I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, when it comes to negotiating, um, they, they use what's around them as leverage and as incentive and as, a pitcher, when you look around and you say, like, I got some bats coming up, that's going to that's gonna help me if I get into a jam or um, if I get myself into a bit of trouble, you're more inclined to stay here. And then they also topped it off like, look, if you hit these numbers, you can actually make 10 mil this year. So they're giving him even more incentive to play better. So I, I think it's a it's a good situation. I think his role is to be a leader, um, to to help these guys get ramped up again for this long season. It was a short season last year. So a lot of these young guys really don't know what this grind is like. Maybe he's there to help it. Um, it's more than just, I feel like a baseball move. He, he's going to be a mentor, but like you said, you're getting a, a heck of a pitcher, man. This guy went through a no hitter in 2018 against the blue Jays. Maybe that's why the blue Jays didn't want him Cause they're still bitter <laughs> about that. No hitter he threw against them. But um, I, I like the situation. Um, I think they're approaching this off season properly so far, but you know how it goes. You still got to get out, get out there and perform. The, the only comment I would make, and, and I don't want to downplay this move. I think they just acquired an asset, quite honestly. Uh, if he helps them, great. If he pitches great, even better. They trade him the deadline. They've got all kinds of young pitching coming. Big, tall, right-handed, flamethrowers, a guy with unbelievable control. That's the long suit for the Mariners. They're short-suited in the bullpen and the outfield. That's where they're short-suited. And they've got two superstars they're waiting for in the outfield and these three really, really talented uh, right-handed pitchers that they're waiting on. So I don't see James in the equation at all. The only thing that could happen is that they force the Mariners to compete. What if he comes out of the shoot and he's the best left-hander in the league for the first half and they're in first place? These guys are going to be like Jerry and the boys are going to have sleepless nights thinking about how they have to add to the team when they're not really wanting to yet. Let me throw this scenario out. Let, let's say he tears it up in the first half, the M's, 
uh, trade him because they can they can get some value for him, and at the end of the season they just go re-sign him again. I mean, you know, there's all and kinds they- of options. That's the that's the whole beauty of this uh, move with James Paxton. Uh, before we move on to Larry Stone and and talk about the column he wrote recently about uh, Seattle sports stars leaving uh, town in their uh, primes, and as that relates to Russell Wilson, uh, one more Mariners signee to talk about bill and that's a, a closer by the name of ken giles he gets a two-year deal but we're not going to see him until 2022 because he's coming off a of tommy john surgery what what should we know about ken giles well he's got a he's got a pretty good rack, track record as a closer he's he's got he's kind of a stuff guy he's not had really really super control but he's he's managed the uh the closer role he's had success in a couple different places um tommy john uh, has been a, 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 a surgery that, that seems to bring pitchers back at least as good or even better sometimes than they were before. Um, so those are all encouraging signs. I just think it's kind of interesting when uh, everybody that they sign seems to have either had Tommy John, going to have Tommy John, and it sort of makes me think that maybe I need to get Tommy John because I didn't get to have <laughs> they, my Tommy John, you know, or they, I'm a or little, they heard I'm of Tommy upset. John. Oh, they heard of Tommy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I guess, I guess it makes sense. You're stockpiling They, they need help now in the bullpen. Um, but it's just, I guess, a play, a play for the future. Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's really smart and strategic. I mean, isn't it when, isn't, when you're 80, 80 or 90 million under the luxury tax, sometimes it's kind of hard for me to wrestle down this whole blue light special. Let's go to Walmart, Marge. Let's get the big shopping cart. Let's go to Walmart. I mean, I just, you know, I get it. You're, 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 you're kind of crescendoing. I'll tell you what, when they do crescendo and Rodriguez and Kelnick are here and the three young studs are in the rotation, they better get, they better put that shopping cart away, start what? shopping at Hermes. Well, the, the, <laughs> the, these Tommy John signings we're talking about, though, seem to point, it seems to point directly to 2022. Yeah. Because if you don't think you're going to compete in 2022 to some degree, maybe that's just becoming a 500 team again, you wouldn't be signing a guy and paying him for a year where he's, he's only going to be rehabbing, but available in 2022. And it, it sounds to me like basically what you have with, with this whole Tommy John thing, it's like it's taken a Kia taking the engine out and putting the Lamborghini engine in, right? Is that, is that the analogy we want to use with the Tommy John surgery guys? It's, you know, and Michael, for an, I don't know, is there an equivalent for an NFL player? Is there a ligament or a tendon we can swap out and make guys even better? Never heard of it. If it's out there, never heard of it. It's the Mariners have to be the most patient organization I've ever seen. I've never seen a team for what two and a half, three years now, just say, hold on, make signings for the future, still bring guys in to kind of bridge the gap between the past and the future. You're bringing in Paxton, who was really one of the first dominoes to fall when they started this rebuilding process. And now he's back. I mean, the patience that this organization has shown is amazing. I hope it works out for him. If it doesn't work out for him, it's not like Mariners fans are going to feel any different because the Mariners have been struggling for so many years anyway. So um, it's a win-win for them. We'll see what they do. You never want to be sacked that many times, you know, 400 times up basically is, is way too many, 400 too many, Um, you know, so I think that's a big, it's a big thing that we got to fix. That's got to be fixed 
The voice, of course, of Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson recently on the Dan Patrick Show as Russell talked about his unhappiness with his offensive line. There has been much written and said about those comments, what they mean. In a column headlined, It Often Goes Sour for Superstar Athletes in Seattle, Could the Seahawks' Russell Wilson be next? Larry Stone of the Seattle Times writes in part, In the history of Seattle sports, it seems like its superstars are almost predestined to have messy exits. That's not to say Wilson is going anywhere, at least not right away, but it doesn't take much of a brain stretch to see this current unpleasantness greasing the skids for the Seahawks quarterback's departure down the road if tensions aren't eased. Larry, good enough to join us on the podcast. Thanks for being here, Larry. Let's talk a little bit more about this. So uncharacteristic for Russell Wilson, who never wants to offend anyone, in essence, throwing his offensive line under the bus. And I'm just wondering what your take is on this. Is it a bit of a speed bump or is he maybe uh, laying some foundation for a larger agenda? Well, Tom, it sure seems that way. I mean, this is this is like a coordinated uh, maneuver here by Russell and his people. I mean, it was a barrage there. You had unnamed sources. You had appearances on uh, radio shows, a Zoom call with the Seattle media, and it all seemed premeditated to sort of get it out there that he's unhappy. And, you know, there's, I think that they can address these, what he's unhappy with, and it could all work out, but I, I could see a, a scenario where it, it doesn't work out as well. I mean, this could be interesting to see what happens now and how the Seahawks react to what Russell is basically asking for uh, in, in what he's saying. There's about two or three things that he clearly wants to get out of this. Well, it certainly, to me, had publicist written all over it. Um, and we know he has one. And if he doesn't, I think he has a wife that has one anyway. Um, you know, and Russell, the re- this is so out of character for him. He very much, Larry, reminds me of Alex Rodriguez, who also had an unceremonious departure from Seattle, and that they always wanted to say the right thing. They always think bigger picture. They, they never wanted to say or do anything uh, to tarnish uh, their image. And, and so to me, this was a significant step on Russell's part to call out teammates. Yeah, that's what stunned me and, and a lot of other people is, you know, <laughs> you, you've seen him post game when you, you ask him a question about the line and he takes it upon himself to praise, you know, the third string uh, left tackle you know he goes down the, the line saying how great everybody is and so for him to say we need to strengthen up you know we need to uh, get better up front in those words that's that's basically throwing his offensive line under the bus which is extremely rare for him uh and i guess it it shows uh the seriousness of of his grievances and but you're right that it that's what makes this so stunning is that it's Russell Wilson who almost always is nothing but positive about his teammates and this time he he is not so maybe at the very least maybe he's just looking for as much leverage uh, as he can come up with to um, push Pete Carroll and John Schneider to do even more in terms of 
upgrading their offensive line. Of course, one way he could help in that regard would be to restructure his contract. And, and maybe that'll come next. And that'll uh, put a lot of uh, fears of uh, 12s concerned about Russell Wilson's uh, future to rest. But I want to get into the historical part of this, because for someone who's born and raised in the area, you, know, you, you threw a lot of names out there that you don't have to go that far back to, to really validate the point you made in the piece. Uh, with the Mariners, we look at how it all came to an end for Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez for the Seahawks, you know, Legion of Boom guys, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, uh, the Sonics can go all the way back to Spencer Haywood. Then you have Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, even going way back. This was this was the first one that really hit me hard as a as a kid who loved the Sonics really more than anything. And that was uh, the trade of of Lenny Wilkins. So um, just talk about that, what you see in terms of a pattern there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, Tom, I would hasten to point out that this isn't just a Seattle phenomenon. This this happens all over, but it's just, we're in Seattle, so that's what I'm talking about. But uh, it's just remarkable when I got to thinking about it, about how often these treasured icons uh, who you think are never going to leave and there's going to be a, you know, a lifelong love affair. It just doesn't happen. Things things get in the way. You know, I, I cited some examples where it didn't happen. Edgar Martinez, who played all 18 years here. You know, Sue Bird, 19 years with the Storm now and counting. Steve Largent, Cortez Kennedy, you know, Walter Jones, Hall of Famers with the Seahawks. They were there their whole careers. But, you know, all the examples that you, you cited, uh, it's, you know, as I point out in the column, it seems that there's two things that, that break up the, uh, the, the happy marriage and it's money, not surprisingly, and uh, respect, the feeling that they're not getting enough respect, uh, enough love. And, and that's where things seem to invariably uh, go, go south. You know, with, uh, with Russell, it's, it, it's not a money problem. It's, uh, he's, you know, he got his contract. He was the highest paid player in NFL history uh, until he was surpassed by by a couple of other people, but you know he's getting enough money. It, now it's a matter of the respect part, in which in, sort of manifested this time with, you know, give me give me say in uh, personnel decisions, give me a line that won't allow me to result in me getting you know beat up, and give me an offense that tailors to my skills. So, uh, you know, he's not going anywhere right now. It would, it would be he's got a no trade clause. There's a thirty nine million dollar a cap hit if they trade him this year, but you know, it, it just bears watching down the road. Well, I, I think absolutely is the case. And for anybody who thinks, well, how could the Seahawks trade Russell Wilson? Um, well, you know what? I remember a, a guy by the name of Wayne Gretzky, who was traded by the Edmonton Oilers in the prime of his career, the greatest hockey player in history. Uh, Larry, I can remember, uh, I think it was 2001, uh, maybe 2002, I remember Pat Gillick coming up on the MLB trade deadline, and and the question was posed to him by someone. It was, um, well, other than Ichiro, um, <laughs> who, who would be considered untouchable on your team as you uh, approach the trade deadline? And Pat said what do you want to give me for each row? <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so the point being there, there really are no untouchables and whether it's via trade or via free agency, because I just saw this guy Brady. Yeah. Win for a team called Tampa Bay, not a team called the new England Patriots. I mean, we, we really shouldn't be surprised when 
when superstars move. And you mentioned money. Sometimes it's that clash of money and age kind of coming together at, at, at the wrong time. Right. Well, and, and Ichiro was traded <laughs> two years. Yes, after he was. That. <laughs> to the, uh, or a few years after that to the Yankees. And you would have thought that he was here for the duration. Uh, yeah. Circumstances change needs of teams change needs of players change. Uh, you know, contracts, have a huge part in it. Uh, there's the age of the of the lifetime player in any sport is just uh, dwindling away. You just you just barely you, you rarely see a Tony Gwynn or a Cal Ripken Jr. or uh, anyone else you could think of who just stays where they are. LeBron James. Look how many teams he's played for. The greatest player of his generation. Yeah. So it just uh, it just happens and free agency of course plays into that as well absolutely well we will uh, we'll keep our eyes on russell certainly uh very closely in this offseason and uh next season when maybe after things actually well i think we'll find out we'll get a much greater sense of this uh, i think at the end of next season yeah uh we'll, we'll have what will either be defined as a successful or another underachieving uh, seahawks postseason i think that'll tell a lot about where Russell Wilson really is in terms of, of his future here. So Larry, as always, uh, it, it's good to catch up. Always appreciate your work. Thanks for taking some time. I know this is a career highlight joining us on the podcast for the first time. So we'll make sure it happens again. All right. All right. Anytime, Tom, my pleasure. Hit that horn. Got to get a new horn. Thanks again to Larry Stone. Uh, his thoughts on uh, Russell Wilson's uh, situation with the Seahawks. Hey, B Bump, I want to talk about a couple of uh, the bigger names in the NFL who reportedly, well, we know one for sure is available. The other we believe to be available. Let's, let's start with the for sure. You know, and this kind of follows up what, what Larry and I were just talking about in terms of, you know, stars, inability to start and begin a career in the same city or with the same franchise. And uh, look at J.J. Watt, a beloved J.J. Watt in Houston, a guy who has done not only tons on the field, but maybe even more impactfully what he has done off the field in terms of his charity work, but uh, a meeting of the minds there, and he's been released. He's a free agent. Is he? a guy that the Seahawks would take a serious look at. And conversely, do you think Seattle's a team that, you know, he would look into? Well, when JJ got released, he said he wanted to win a championship. So he's looking at teams where he thinks he can win a championship. Does he look at the Seahawks team and say, hey, these guys have a chance to make a run at it? If he feels that way, I think he's taking a look. Are the Seahawks taking a look at him? I think they're glancing, but I don't think they're investing in this. J.J. Watt, great player, been great to the league, great to his community. But just like we just got talking about Paxton, he's had a lot of injuries in his day, and he's just up there in age. Once you hit around that 33, 34, um, it, your, your, your days are numbered. I think he's going to be able to contribute to a team, but I think most important, the thing they need to do on that defensive line is get Carlos Dunlap back. I think if you get Carlos Dunlap, you don't need a J.J. Watt. You're still waiting to see what Daryl Taylor looks like who didn't play this year. I don't think you go after JJ. I think if he is available towards the beginning of training camp and you have some space in the salary cap, you sit and you have a conversation with him. He shouldn't be a priority though. All right. Let's, let's go to uh, Philadelphia. Tight end Zach Ertz uh, has had a very nice career, but had a high ankle sprain last season played in just 11 games. You know, you talk 31 years of age. Um, 
Now, the Seahawks reportedly have had some discussions with the Eagles. Now, we don't know if that means Philadelphia called and John Schneider picked up the phone and said, hey, I'm glad you called. We're not interested or, or there is something that is ongoing. Uh, obviously, Greg Olson didn't really um, work out for the Seahawks. And even if he had, it was probably only going to be a one-year situation. Anyway, one, Michael, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on Ertz. And as we talked about what, is there a fit in Seattle? And two, if there is a fit in Seattle, what is that? Is that signifying any concerns you think the Seahawks may have in terms of Will Disley and his development? A really talented guy. He's had two major injuries early in his career, healthy last season, but was not impactful. Yeah, well, there's no question if Zach Ertz were to come to Seattle, he'd be the best tight end on the roster. I mean, before last year, before his high ankle sprain, yeah, three consecutive Pro Bowl seasons, 2019, 916 yards, six touchdowns. I mean, he was considered an elite tight end before this year. If he's on this roster, he's the best tight end. But in my opinion, they don't need to be going after Zach Ertz right now. You need to be doing things that are going to protect Russell Wilson. I saw a stat today. Russell's been sacked 394 times in nine seasons. Brett Favre is the most sacked quarterbacks. How many seasons he play? 18, 20 seasons. He's at 520. If Russell plays that long, he will be sacked around 800-something times, 1,300 times more than Brett Favre, who was probably going to play for longer than Russell Wilson. All I'm saying is that if the tight end, if you think the tight end is part of the reason why Russell's being sacked, then you go ahead and get a tight end. But there are other things you need to do. You got to talk to Russell. You got to talk to your offensive line. You got an old coordinator who ho who's hopefully going to help get the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands quicker. I like Zach Ertz. I would love to have him. But after this whole week where they not watching the news and what Russell was saying and all the, the drama that's going on, then they say, you know, what? forget all that noise. We're going after a tight end. I don't, I don't know if that's the right move right now. You do something to appease your quarterback. It might sound um, millennial and fluffy and soft, but his concerns are real. And if it feels like, if he feels like they're ignoring his concerns, then I think that's just going to snowball into bigger issues. You know, Bill, it, I mean, I think Michael's hit it dead on in that it's not as if, uh, you know, Ruffle, Russell is looking for a better third option at wide receiver. He, he really is looking for uh, something that's going to help everybody else on offense. Another quality lineman or two, which should not only help him, keep him healthy. By the way, if you don't keep Russell Wilson healthy, you are winning nothing. You got to protect him and also help your running game. You know, hopefully you're getting somebody who can't just pass block, but can also run block. I think that's where your focus on the draft has to be. And I think that's where your focus in free agency has to be. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the philosophy on offense, it'll be interesting to see what that is. You know, that obviously dictates the type of uh, blocking schemes you have and, and the type that would, that would lend itself well to what type of a, of a interior lineman you're looking for. And these guys don't hit the front page of, uh, of everybody's newspaper, but they end up being the most important part of your team. So it's not very splashy. It doesn't hit the, the news feed like a Zach Ertz would or a Carson Wentz. I mean, those things are just, they're, they're hitting the news because they're the top. It's, it's all profile stuff and how the Eagles have this like, you know, team that's unwinding. And, you know, so I think these are quieter things that are happening. I'm certain the, the uh, Seahawks are looking at interior linemen, having a lot of discussion around what they can do there. 
and they don't want to make it look like they're instantly placating to Russell, even though they probably know deep down he's right. Uh, so I think these are all things in, in due time. I think the, the Seahawks' thirst to win is, is, is unstoppable. They have too much of a winning pride. They're, they know where their issues are. And, the, and those issues, as you, as you mentioned, Michael, are real. Those numbers, those sack numbers are, are just way too high. And this guy is a fly. Now, he's got eyes in the back of his head, but he can't move quite like – every year he's not going to be able to move as quickly. So you're going to have to come up with some – I mean, there's complimentary things, right? I mean, if you had a good over-the-middle pass catcher like, like Zach Ertz, you know, and that you develop that part of your game a little bit more, like they really don't have a tight end game. They don't really have a, a real scheme around that. Or, you know, a, Chris, a healthy Chris Carson is coming back and, you know, he can be a bulldozer for you. I mean, those are things that are obviously helpful, but it's going to come down to the style that they want to play and getting those guys is paramount. I think with Shane Waldron, with him coming into this, this organization, I think of Tyler Higbee, I think of Everett over there, the tight ends for the Rams. So this might be, this might be a Waldron move. He goes, look, I need this type of tight end for my offense to be successful. Maybe this is the first time we're seeing the impact that Shane can have on this offense when it comes to personnel. I'll say this. If, if they don't make significant moves on that offensive line, and if they either fail to get to the postseason next season, or they get into the postseason and they're, they're a one and done again, Russell Wilson won't hint at possibly leaving Seattle. He will Deshaun Watson demand his way out of Seattle, period, end of story. That will be that. All right, hey, before we uh, move on in a conversation with uh, former Gonzaga basketball great Matt Santangelo, also the executive director of uh, HoopFest uh, over in Spokane, let's, uh, let's talk about our Stars of the Week presented by Ecliptic Brewing. Pour some space in your face, ecliptichbrewing.com. I don't know if you guys saw the uh, – I put a little – picture out on a social media yesterday. I was, I was, uh, you know, they say summer is a state of mind. And despite all the snow we had, I, I took an easy chair I out to the that. front yard, <laughs> had my sandals on my shorts, and I had my starburst ecliptic brewing beer in hand. It was just a quick photo shoot, by the way, I was quickly back in the house. <laughs> because summer may be a state of mind, but cold and snow is real <laughs> all right so stars of the week michael you want to go first sure i'm gonna go with i hope i'm saying his last name right daniel Berger won this weekend yeah pebble beach had an eagle to win it on 18 27 years old and i just watched the way you you can tell a lot about a person when they're on the green and you got a putt you got a two putt, whatever, one putt to win. And just, I look at their hands when they're moving the ball. Are they shaking? Are they messing with their hat? And the kid was cool, man. He was so cool, so calm, sank the putt, nice little fist pump. Um, I love seeing young guys get it done. The talk of the tournament was supposed to be Jordan Spieth. And Jordan Spieth lost a four-stroke lead, I believe, in the last round. Um, unfortunate for him, but my star of the week, Daniel Berger. I like that. I watched that live when he made that putt. That was clutch. You know, we all, we all, we all practice that moment where, when we're out on the putting green, when we're going to yeah. play right 20 feet away, tournament on the line. So that, that was cool. That was a cool moment. Bill, your star of the week is. Michael's going to love this because the Dodger. Okay. So I think a dream came true for one Trevor Bauer. Yes, sir. Uh, not only did he get his cake, he gets to eat it too. Playing at home, <laughs> playing with a perennial powerhouse, and the the Dodgers have uh, 
reclaim their 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 spot on the mantle and to have a, a top shelf pitcher like Bauer, it's a, it's a match made in heaven. And this guy gets to dictate his his terms. I mean, this $102 million deal for three years, what a sweetheart deal for Trevor Bauer. $10 million bonus. He makes 28 in 2021. He has a $2 million buyout. So that's $40 million for one year. Or he can stick around for two years, $32 million, have a $15 million buyout. That's two years, $85 million. So he can walk in year one. He can walk in year two. He can stick around for the whole package. And he's at home playing for the best team in baseball. So... I think that's a pretty good week for a, a, a pitcher. Not too shabby. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little twofold here. Um, I usually wouldn't go baseball management, but I I really really like this Paxton deal. So I, I'm gonna go with Jerry Depoto. I don't know how it all came together, but it came together. It's a no lose proposition for the team uh, and where they are. And so it was surprising. It was a positive surprise. Very likable guy in James Paxton. In addition to the talent that we talked about. So Jerry DePoto, the general manager of the Mariners, I'm going to give him star of the week. And then I'm going to give an honorable mention and only honorable mention because it's non-sports and I'm going to dip my toe into politics. Sorry, everybody. I'm going to go with the democratic house managers for executing a terrific prosecution of our previous president. And I will just leave it at that. Uh, your stars of the week presented by ecliptic brewing. It is out of this world beer, ecliptic Let's talk some zags. Santangelo wide open and that's what they can do. Well, who knew roughly 20 years ago that uh, when a guy by the name of uh, Matt Santangelo and his teammates were making some noise over at Gonzaga as an elite eight team and then a sweet 16 team, it was really laying the foundation for what has become a basketball powerhouse, an unbeaten top-ranked team in the nation this season. Mark Few's club thinking national championship once again. And to talk about the Zags, let's go from the 206 over to the 509 and say hello to former Gonzaga great Matt Santangelo, who, oh, by the way, just happens to be the executive director of HoopFest. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Other than the snow outside, uh, we're, we're doing pretty well over here. Yeah, Ours is melting, so we're happy about yes. that. We, we love yeah. to get it, and then we love to see it go away quickly. Hey, before we talk about the Zags, I know it's been a really challenging time, uh, really for everybody in this country and around the world due to COVID. That has impacted HoopFest. Uh, give us the latest on, on where things stand with the tournament. I know you had to, to cancel your most recent event, but... What is going on now with this uh, event that uh, basketball fans, not only in the Northwest, but across the country, uh, just absolutely love? Yeah, I appreciate that. No, so last year we had to go virtual. We really competed hard to figure out ways to, to be able to hold some form of an in-person event. Uh, but it just didn't work out for us with everything that we all know is existing as, you know, public safety and the health of the communities are number one priority. That hasn't changed at all. And so as we look forward to 2021, we're optimistic. Uh, you know, for 31 years, the event has been held at the end of June um, as the historical Hoop Fest weekend. We've proactively made the decision this year in 2021 to go to September 11th and 12th. So we've already made the call that we're moving it to September this year in 2021 as a one-year uh, kind of stop and hopefully back to June in 2022. But with the hopes that that gives us a long enough duration here that we are all you know, the majority of us get vaccinated, um, that we're all kind of more confident about coming outside, 
uh, and that we get to have an in-person event. It's really, really important to us um, and our mission. Um, it's important to our community uh, to be able to hold a safe event. And that was the weekend that uh, we could land on because for those that know HoopFest, this isn't something you can just pick up and move. There's a few weekends that, uh, that actually work for an event our size and for the amount of things that we use in our city. Um, and that September 11th and 12th weekend was the one for us. So um, optimistic planning, everyday planning, um, and excited about the prospect of uh, getting back out on the streets for some basketball in September. How large is HoopFest in terms of your staffing? Because you make a great point. It's not like re- rescheduling a family vacation, right? I mean, this is yep. a, such a massive uh, undertaking. So what goes into uh, moving this event now into September? Yeah, try to put it in terms of that people can grasp. So we use three, imagine Disneyland. Disneyland is roughly three square miles. Now imagine that being set up for 24,000 basketball players because that's ultimately what HoopFest is. So it's about three square miles of basketball, 420 plus courts uh, that support, you know, 6,000 teams, 24,000 athletes. Um, and so when I say we use a lot, I mean, that is a lot of streets. It's about 45 city blocks. It's our riverfront park. And then it's all the, you know, the moving pieces that go along with that. We have a staff of seven, full-time staff of seven and about, uh, you know, 3000 volunteers to execute that event. Um, and roughly 250 sponsors to execute that event. So when we say a lot of moving parts, you're starting to get a better idea of what I mean. And so to just pick that up and move it from this week, yeah, maybe we'll do Hoop Fest this weekend. And if it doesn't, we'll just do it the next weekend. Yeah, that doesn't, unfortunately, that doesn't work so well um, because of all those stakeholders and people that, that really give a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to, to that event happening. Um, and so this idea is that, you know, this year we'll probably still be at some form of a socially distanced event and tournament. Um, and so not quite the same scale as we're used to. But again, it's really important for us to have this event for a lot of number of reasons, um, primarily so we can get to 2022 uh, to be able to live to play another day. Yeah, it's it's a look, it's it's huge in terms of the financial impact for Spokane and surrounding area to talk about the the imprint that HoopFest has on that economy. Yeah, so it's, it's estimated about a, a roughly about a $50 million economic mm-hmm. impact to our region. So every couple of years, we partner with Gonzaga University here, the School of Business, and they come in and do our economic impact study. So this, is, this isn't me writing it down on a cocktail napkin. We actually have some smarter people uh, involved in getting us to that number. Um, but when you just look at our registration, for example, 2019, which was the most appropriate event to look at, we had 43 states represented just in our registration and six countries. Mm. Um, and so people do come from all over the world, uh, come back to Spokane from all over the world for HoopFest. And all those are just incremental dollars into the economy. And a lot of that impact goes directly into our hospitality community, our bars, our restaurants, our hotels, of course, um, you know, airlines to travel. Um, and those are some of the industries that are hit the hardest throughout this entire pandemic. So we kind of look at it as a little bit of our responsibility to do what we can in order to, to make a positive impact. In addition to running a great basketball tournament, um, you know, it's our responsibility as a community organization to, to, you know, get that, you know, for lack of a better term, that shot in the arm that we all need uh, in, in many forms. So, um, uh, you know, we look forward to that opportunity too for this year for, again, for those 
small businesses and those independent hotels and, and, uh, and larger restaurants and hotels as well that have been hit so hard over this past year and a half. Matt, what, what makes Spokane a community that embraces an event like this, but it's, it's not only hoop fest. I mean, I, I immediately think of the Bloomsday run and what a, yep. a massive successful gathering of uh, people that has been, uh, what is it about Spokane that it embraces yeah. these two events? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the easy way to say it is that we have to make our own fun. You know, I, I, this is the one thing that I just, I absolutely love about hoop fest and Bloomsday is another great example is that when we, even when we talk about Gonzaga here shortly, we're watching those 12 athletes and that staff, you know, in, in major cities like the West side, you have major sports. So you're going and watching the talent. You know, you may buy a ticket to the theater to go watch the talent. Well, in Spokane, we are the talent. And I'm really proud of that. And I'm not saying that we're uber talented. I'm just saying we have to make our own fun. And we have to be a part of the show, a part of the energy. And I think that that, because of Bloom's, Bloomsday's longstanding tradition, 32 years of Hoop Fest in 2021, um, there is a sense of, hey, this is our time. This is our town. We can make an impact together. We can go out and have fun. Um, and we just choose to do that uh, in, through running and through basketball. And at least in these two examples, we do it in a lot of different ways. Um, and I just think that that's a really wonderful message. Um, one of my favorite quotes is actually by Dennis Rodman, of all people. So just take a wild guess as to what you're about to hear, right? <laughs> um, but one of my favorite quotes, which I say around my family a lot, is that the party don't make the people, the people make the party. And I think that's a great philosophy for life and a great philosophy for what we do here at Hoop Fest and the broader Spokane community is that it's not, it's not the, this great metropolitan area that makes us, it's us, the people that are making this, you know, these events in this great community. And so I think that that, that one uh, holds true, at least for the two examples we've used in Bloomsday and Hoop Fest. Well, Hoopfest, I think, clearly stands on its own, but but I'm curious if the success of the Zags has added fuel to that fire. I think that's a great uh, correlation, but if we look at it, I mean, it's 32 years. I can speak to both of them. 32 years of Hoopfest, it's only been 21 years of Gonzaga on the national scene, because I remember 1999, uh, or 22, I guess, going on 22 years. Um, and so what it has, though, is that it has been lockstep um, over this last couple of decades as Gonzaga has made their launch. And really what, what we, how we have kind of approached that is that it's even bigger than Gonzaga basketball and it's bigger than Hoop Fest, which are hard to believe. Those are the two pillars of this initiative that we call Hoop Town USA. This is the reason why Spokane is Hoop Town USA because we have these wonderful, unique, world-class examples of the power of basketball to really mobilize uh, and energize a community. Um, and they've been doing it for a long time, you know, sustained success over a really long time. Um, and the connections those form, you know, that's the part that I, that always just gives me the chills is that, you know, the most impassioned fan base for Gonzaga basketball are women and men that maybe never played this sport of basketball, but they love, they love what that community is. They love that connection that the, both the men's and women's uh, Zags can, can provide. And really what makes Hoopfest go is that volunteer effort. You know, it's people that really work hard. They're on the streets all weekend long, helping manage those games so that the rest of us can enjoy going to play them. Um, you know, and that's the connection. That's the power of sport to really mobilize and and, uh, and, and energize a community. Uh, and here in Hooptown, USA, those are two big pillars, Gonzaga basketball and Hoopfest. 
Well, let's talk about Mark Few's team, and I'm sure the tournament will make a strong case as to whether this is the greatest Gonzaga team in history. Um, at this point, if we have that debate, where do you think they stand? Yeah, I mean, I always, I always kind of, um, it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm totally speaking tongue in cheek here a little bit. But the marketing department for Gonzaga athletics, at least the men's basketball side, have kind of recycled the slogan "This is the best team ever" every year since 2000. <laughs> I mean, we went in 1999, 2000 is the best team. 2000, so they've just kind of wash, rinse, repeat. Okay, whatever year we are at, this is the best team ever. Well, I think next year they're going to have their work cut out for them because I do think this is the best team ever. That's, that's how I get to my answer. The, the long, yeah. long answer to your short question is I think that this team is really unique. Um, I think that they play just a wonderful style of basketball. They seem to be enjoying it. I think that is, even though we can't be in the gym with them, but you can, I think you can see their enthusiasm through TV. Um, and they have the, they have the various talented pieces um, really in droves. I mean, I had a ton of depth, multiple talented pieces at every level, every spot. Um, so I think that this group is really, really good um, and deserves of the hype. And then I also think they have the shoulders to, to live up to the hype. And uh, that will remain to be seen, um, but it's never going to take away from the journey and how good this group is. Yeah, look, uh, unbeaten, top ranked in the country. To, to me, Matt, the the difference maker, the key guy, right? And this is taking nothing away from Drew Timmy. It's taking nothing away from Corey Kispert or anybody else on that team. But for me, it Jalen Suggs is at such a a different level uh, at a critically important position, and you would know this better than me uh, because he's the engine that kind of makes it go. Um, and it seems like. Uh, he it's total buy-in for him from, from day one. Um, yeah. and, and, and Mark's done a terrific job for a guy that's going to be a top, potentially a top three NBA pick to just fit in and become part of the team. Um, am I right in that assessment? I think he, what Jalen does is it's a, he's a program defining guard. So like the fact that they get him that, you know, he's a one and done and, and that, you know, on his way to a really high draft pick in the NBA is that it opens up the door for those types of athletes to really consider Spokane and Gonzaga in the future. I think that's what he does. I think with this particular team, um, you know, he sets the ceiling really, really high uh, because he can do things physically that not everyone can do. I mean, not just on Gonzaga's roster, but there's not a lot of Jalen Suggs out there in the world. Um, but I, his ability, his composure, his maturity, his ability to buy into the team um, are just as impressive as his athletic ability to really be a Zag. And that, that's a character quality over here on the side of the mountain. Like to be a Zag means something to us. Um, and he's, he's showing those character qualities. Now on the flip side of that coin, the fact that you have Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, you know, Joel, I, they have uh, Nemhart off the bench, Cook off the bench, uh, Anton. I mean, the fact that they have all this talent around him means Jalen Suggs can still be a freshman too. Mm -hmm. He can get in foul trouble. He can, you know, not shoot it great every night because they have this tremendous depth uh, and tremendous chemistry that allows him just to be a young developing, you know, athlete, basketball player. So I think that, that there is a, a great harmony 
in what he brings and the ceiling he sets, but that what he's surrounded with, with, the, with this program and their style of play yeah. that really emphasizes efficiency and sharing the basketball where they can showcase their talent, but they don't necessarily have to shoulder the burden uh, each and every night. It's a great point. I think it's a style play, obviously, that's very appealing to recruits. Um, kids love to get up and down the court and score the basketball, and they obviously do that as, as well as anybody in college hoops. About a year and a half ago, I had an extended uh, chat with Coach Few, and it's, it's really been fascinating to watch you know, Gonzaga go from this um, regional recruiting base to what has now become an international recruiting base and they can walk into any home or in this current period zoom into any home (laughs) with on an on an equal footing with any program in the country they can recruit and go head to head with north carolina or kentucky you know baylor's obviously in a nice uh, phase right now but uh, talk a little bit about just that evolution of being able to uh, go out and make a run at any kid anywhere, anytime. That's huge. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, I think kind of three thoughts on that one and see if I can keep them organized. The first one is really um, kind of a, a linchpin moment in the history of the program when coach few on his rise, those first, maybe that first decade um, of him as head coach, uh, when it was a lot of other schools coming to him and saying, you know, big five schools, power schools coming to say, okay, we're going to recruit coach few away from Gonzaga. And Gonzaga or Coach Few made the decisions like, why can't we win it from here? You know, that commitment of saying, like, I don't need to go to name blue blood that is in coaching transition. Um, I can do it right here from Spokane, Washington, from Gonzaga, if we put the resource into the program. So that I think that was a, a huge kind of foundational piece for this, this journey of Coach Few saying, nope. You know, and he saw it. He saw it with Dan Munson from Gonzaga to Minnesota. He saw it with Dan's father, Don Munson from Idaho to Oregon. Um, so he'd kind of seen this, okay, we're going to use a small school to this stepping stone. And he, there was wisdom. He, he, he earned wisdom in those, in their journey that he didn't necessarily have to go get the battle scars for the scar tissue from. So I think that that was a big one. I think the international recruiting, Tommy Lloyd has to get credit there. Um, but it was also born out of necessity because when this whole thing started, they couldn't go into any door, any living room in America. So they had to go find talent outside of, uh, you know, outside of the country. And then they were able to do that. So I think that that's a big point in that kind of international is that, you know, they weren't going to get Jalen Suggs 10 years ago, um, but they were able to go recruit Domata Sabonis. You know, they were able to go get Kelly Olenek, uh, who were, you know, otherworldly talents, but we just did, they were in a different part of the world, you know, and so they, they were able to go find them. Um, And then I think, you know, I think the third piece to that recruiting story now is that there's not an example of a college basketball player, a type of college basketball player that Gonzaga hasn't had success with, you know, with Jalen Suggs with one and done, you know, Zach Collins would be officially the first one and done, even though it wasn't, it wasn't a planned one and done to fifth year transfers to mid career transfers. Uh, to mid-career redshirt, the Kelly Olenek example, um, to walk-ons who develop the David Stockton, Mike Hart, you know, Mike Nielsen, I mean, go through the list of Kyle Bankheads, the influential walk-ons uh, throughout this whole uh, journey. Um, but there's not one type of athlete that they go into a living room. We say, we can p- not just point to say, hey, we had someone like you in our program. You can say, we had the best ever 
you know, fifth year transfer, or we had, you know, the best ever international player. Like they can point to superlative examples of whatever situation you're going through as a young athlete, as you're looking at a different college and say, no, we, we've had someone like you and we developed them over their career. Look what, the, look what they accomplished. Um, and I think that those three things, uh, Coach Few's commitment to, to doing it from Spokane, from Gonzaga University, the necessity and the foresight to go out and, and recruit internationally when they couldn't get into the necessarily all the doors domestically, um, and the ability that they develop kids. No matter where you're at in your journey, you're going to get better when you're in Spokane and where you, when you're at Gonzaga. I think all those um, you know, make their recruiting story now uh, so much stronger when they are going after this next generation athletes. Yeah, great, great points. And, and you can't say that about every program in terms of the development of the players. You always feel like when, when a young man leaves that program, um, they have taken him to the maximum of his ability. And uh, it's impressive. So that's Coach Few, the staff, all the guys there, uh, and, and hard work, obviously, on everybody's part, coaches and players alike. So it's, it's cool to watch. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be close to it. Like, you know, sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees when you're, you know, you're in it like uh, and as close to it as we are here in Spokane or I am, you know, here sitting in my seat at the Hoop Fest office and just basketball in general. Um, but it is it's great when you can back up and you and you really get to, um, you know, try to articulate it. I think, you know, you don't really own knowledge until you can articulate it. So having the chance to have conversations like this where you it is a tough thing, because if it were easy, everyone would do it. And right. everyone's trying to do this one um, and they can't figure it out. So it, it is a really rare uh, situation. And, you know, it, it, the, a lot of times you just got to enjoy the journey, uh, no matter how the last game of the season ends. You know, you got to enjoy it while yeah. you got it because it is really special. You know, the kennel is not the kennel without the fans. And, and I'm curious yeah. in this season where you don't have those passionate students in there and members, you know, then you got your regular fan base, right? Is the buzz around this team in Spokane as it would be in, in a normal circumstance or the fact that, you know, we, we have this situation we have, has it, has it, has it muted things to any degree? No, it's only made it like, it's only a greater uh, it's, it's louder in the fact that we can't gather. It's like scarcity. You know, like we are, we, after last year's season ended so abruptly that uh, 2019, 2020 campaign for college basketball, for everyone, not just, you know, not just Gonzaga community. Um, there's a greater appreciation for the fact that we actually get to watch them. You know, we, we have a greater admiration for just being able to be, you know, somewhat a part of it. And then this team, of course, with the hype, the way they started the season was, I mean, just blew the doors off. Um, and so I think that the, the, it's, it's, it's on this kind of continue, continual rise. Um, but because we can't gather to show our appreciation, it makes us more hungry for the feeling maybe. Like there's a sense of yeah. like, we better take advantage of this moment because we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know if March, we still don't know if March is going to happen at the yeah. NCAA tournament, you know? So I think that uncertainty uh, breeds a little bit of gratitude. Um, which is necessary. Uh, you know, it's one of the silver linings of COVID that I hope sticks around a little longer than the, than the pandemic itself is this idea of we better appreciate the moment because we just don't know we're going to get it again. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, hopefully there'll, there'll be some great moments for the program in March. Uh, we know what the, uh, the eventual goal is and for HoopFest as well. Um, you guys do great work. It's a phenomenal event. So uh, all the best at those September dates uh, come through because that'll, that'll mean more than hoop fest is a success. It'll mean on a much bigger scale. Uh, there's some good things going on 
nationally yes. and internationally. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Matt, appreciated yeah, the visit. Great stuff. And uh, I hope we can do it again. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. That's Matt Santangelo, former Gonzaga star, executive director of Hoop Fest. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the 206. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs>